So let's kick off with um, a couple of comments on the economy. Um, look, helped by declining COVID infection rates, it's really the mass vaccination program which is allowing the government to draw up its roadmap. And you know, we, we had Boris speaking on Monday, uh, Nicola Sturgeon was outlining um, the Scottish plans yesterday. Um, but most of you in England have seen that it's essentially, it's a four stage plan and it's relaxing social restrictions step by step until the 21st of June. In brief, at the moment, daily cases are running at about 11,000 a day. They're declining by around 12% on the week. And somewhere around 18 million people have received at least one jab. And the, the target now is for all adults to have been offered a vaccination by the end of July, which is really impressive, obviously. And whilst the vaccines give you a high immunity from infection, what they also do, and this is important, they, they cut the, rear, the, the, the risk of severe infection. And so looking forward, the government will be probably looking less at the daily cases rate, which we all look at, um, and the so-called R number. And then, you know, perhaps more, the key indicator will be hospital admissions. Now, markets have been anticipating this newfound freedom from the, the, the vaccines um, for a while. And that's certainly the case with the stock market. Um, it's been rallying on vaccine issues, arguably since November. And what's becoming a bit clearer over the past few weeks is that currencies are being influenced by the relative vaccination rates. And we, we've done a bit of work on this in, in the Investec economics team. And um, there does seem to be some correlation so far this year between the pace of vaccinations in individual currencies, uh, sorry, in individual countries and the strength of the individual currencies. The, the Israeli shekel doesn't quite work, but um, the prime example here is sterling, which has rallied strongly. Um, it reached somewhere around 142 and a half against the US dollar overnight. And that, that's principally driven by um, the UK's impressive vaccine rate. Now, turning specifically to the budget, um, don't forget that the budget was delayed from October last year. Remember that the government is trying to hold the budgets now each autumn, and that's a legacy of Philip Hammond when he was chancellor. However, over October, November, economic prospects were, were too uncertain to, to commit to a budget, hence the delay. And just for a bit of context, if you look at fiscal events, typically each year, year we'll have a budget, we'll get what's now a spring statement and a spending review around once every three years. Uh, the recent history is that Rishi Sunak held his first budget around a year ago. But if you count up all the fiscal events over the past 12 months, we've had 14 specific fiscal announcements over the past year. And really what that shows you is how dependent the, the UK government has been on using fiscal policy. And that's an important point. One question is, is the current economic situation still very uncertain with the vaccines on track? We would argue that it is uncertain, despite the plans to unlock the economy, which we heard on Monday. The economy was certainly more resilient than many thought towards the end of last year. It actually expanded in the UK by 1% over Q4. And that's despite the number of social restrictions being imposed and the second lockdown in November. But the signs so far in 2021 are that the economy is actually struggling more than in November. So sadly, what we're looking at now is more job losses and some company failures. And it should be remembered that the roadmap is an intention. It's not a firm fixed timetable. And that could get off 
blown off course by, you know, for example, there's a new variant of the coronavirus where everyone has to become more cautious again. Going on to a baseline view, our forecast for the UK is that we'll get a bounce back in GDP over the second quarter. In aggregate, our growth forecast for this year is 6.4%. For next year, it's 6.5%. One technical thing which the Office for National Statistics seems to be doing more than usual is revising up the level of GDP. Um, and they've done this through 2020, so that now last year didn't quite look as bad as it did. On this basis, what we think we might get now is instead of the economy reaching its pre-pandemic level of GDP by the middle of 2022, we now think that that's going to happen by the end of this year. Also, one point is we've got um, lots of excess savings in bank accounts. Um, the, the risks um, in a position like we are are to the downside, but if you if you look at excess savings, we, we reckon there's something like around 90 billion um, pounds, which wouldn't have been there had um, the pandemic not occurred and, you know, with avenues of spending being shut. And that's about the equivalent of 7% of consumer spending. So what's the fiscal position? Um, we're obviously talking about big deficit numbers here. The Office for Budget Responsibility was forecasting a deficit of 394 billion in November. Um, recent figures look as if it's not quite going to be as bad as that. The figures could be undershot by around 50 billion or so. But again, another technical point is that at the moment, those figures don't include uh, possible losses from schemes such as C-bills. Um, so they could be revised up in any case. The cost of the pandemic measures at the moment is estimated. Um, at around 280 billion pounds and the biggest single element here are is the furlough scheme the cjrs um, but if you withdraw the scheme straight away what you get of course is a negative impact on the economy and unemployment and therefore the deficit will rise so the obr has been looking at borrowing running at around 100 billion pounds per annum over the medium term once the pandemic is over and that equates to about four percent of gdp which, which is certainly large and we would argue unsustainable the question is therefore does rishi sunak have to tighten fiscal policy and some people will argue that there's no need to cut borrowing as deficits just don't matter well our view is fairly strongly that they, they do matter um, but borrowing rates are low admittedly but they've been rising so far this year so if you, if you look at 10-year gilt rates which is the, the rate at which the government will borrow over a period of 10 years they're, they're currently about 0.7 percent but that represents something like a 50 basis point or half a percentage point rise uh, over the year so far. And the danger is that if you run large deficits for too long, investor sentiment swings, and then it becomes very expensive to borrow. And um, you, you really want to be um, avoiding that situation. So what exactly is Rishi Sunak going to do this time next week? We think it's extremely unlikely that he's going to unveil any major tightening. Uh, he would risk derailing the economy if he did that. Um, also, a fiscal tightening of that sort would sit really uncomfortably with what's going on elsewhere. We've got big fiscal expansions in the US and in the European Union as well. And the question realistically, I think, is whether we see a modest set of measures 
to send a message on the UK's fiscal credibility, and, and that's entirely possible. Looking at specifics, cutting spending is a complete non-starter due to, for example, the levelling up programme between different regions of the country. Uh, meanwhile, the Conservative Party manifesto has promised no income tax increases nor any rises in national insurance rates or VAT. So the possibilities which are left are really measures which we've talked about before on these webinars, and they're, in, in essence, corporation tax, capital gains tax, and restrictions on pension tax relief. There's also been a little bit of chatter about wealth taxes, but really it's difficult to see a Conservative government introducing a wealth tax in the UK. And we'd note that the, the Democrats in the US have just ruled one out um, as well. Current rumours, the chat seems to be that um, we're going to see a rise in corporation tax this time um, next week. Um, of course, what the option the Chancellor has is to do just a tiny bit now uh, and then wait until October, November until the second budget this year when hopefully the, the, you can see a bit clearer on how the land lies. Um, against this, you've got continued need to support the economy. We, we know small businesses are really struggling over the pandemic. It also makes sense to us to lengthen the furlough scheme, the CJRS and the CEASE beyond April and perhaps taper them, taper them down um, over a period of months. Um, indeed, there's a story in the Times this morning that Sunak will extend the stamp duty holiday uh, by three months to the end of June, also extend the furlough scheme to the same point and then do something similar with the business rates holiday as well. But at the moment, that, that's still just speculation. In summary, then, those are our thoughts on macro side. We've got a tough economic background under the current lockdown particularly, but there does seem to be light at the end of the tunnel. And June at the moment seems to be the critical month which the, the government is essentially planning to be virtually back to normal, both in terms of the economy, ending the social restrictions and um, ending the key pandemic support measures. Bear in mind, as I said, that there should be two budgets this year. Uh, the Chancellor may not reveal and probably won't reveal his entire hand on Wednesday. OK, so that's the economic background as far as we see it. Um, with that, could I now hand you over to Will Schooler, who will share his thoughts on the property market. Will, over to you. Philip, uh, thank you very much and good morning, everybody. Um, uh, Philip, if, perhaps if you'll indulge me, I'm going to start with a simple economic principle. Um, so the price of a good, and let's say a property in this instance, is determined by the demand for that property relative to its supply. Uh, a fairly simple statement and one that I'm sure pretty much everyone on the call is familiar with. So my uh, circumstances, as many of you will be out there, I'm locked down at home. I have a particularly long-suffering wife and I have a son who's doing a master's degree in real estate. So of a jolly lockdown evening, we like to debate the property market. You can imagine how much my wife enjoys that. Um, we're going through various things and learning new theories of uh, IRRs and DCFs and MPVs and something called the Monte Carlo sensitivity analysis, which um, for those who aren't initiated is not nearly as much fun as it sounds. Um, we happened upon what is the government's influence over the property market. So 
we we're in a particularly free market economy and as i just you know very basically explained that demand and supply govern price however government interference and uh, uh, has its has the most significant impact in my view on how that market trades so in the in the light of the uh, budget coming up in the in the next week what are the tools that the government have uh, to their hand to influence that property market um, on the demand side I would say uh, tax and stamp duty, and that's something that I'm sure will be debated later, is a key influencer, as is other things such as corporation and capital gains tax. Um, the stimulus that we've seen the government bring into the economy this year and to the housing market through help to buy, and that has uh, been particularly successful and something like 280,000 households have enjoyed a, a home which wouldn't have otherwise enjoyed so through that mechanism and stimulus um, and that looks set to continue and of course fiscal policy uh, which Philip alluded to and we sit we find ourselves in a continuing low interest rate environment and that seems to be set for the future so uh, demand side there is uh, some st strong elements there on the supply side uh, land law and that's perhaps a little esoteric for this this call but probably more importantly and more significant is development control or planning laws which have all been looked at very significantly through this uh, lockdown period and that perhaps is something we could dwell on a little bit further if of interest in the Q&A um, so if, with that as a context where does that what, Market done this year, and and how have we seen it? Well, it's been a you know it's been a most surprising year. We've seen uh, if I look if I take first of all the residential market and look at owner occupiers, um, the ONS uh, stated that as of December uh, last year the market rose by eight percent, and I don't think any of us would have predicted that at the beginning of a, a lockdown year, um, and that's. Uh, across the country but however it's not uniform across the country i think that's an important point to make the northwest was uh, the, the 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 key winner in that that's over 10 percent and probably for once london was the loser um with prime central london being the worst performing sector at a minus three or four percent um the other interesting point to make much has been talked about moving out to the country and more space was the uh, value increase in houses was double that of flats at 10 percent for housing and five percent for flats um, the other impact has been on uh, the rental side of that uh, we've actually seen a significant drop in rental values in central london as people have moved moved out of the country out to the country and there are less workers uh, needing to be uh, within the in the city bounds However, and I think this is a big however, I, th I think um, the London market is set to turn. Um, uh, if you take the commentators and people like uh, Knight Frank have predicted that uh, central London primary, central London property would increase by about 25% in value over the next five years. So a significant opportunity there for perhaps some of our, our private clients. Um, I then move on to, if I may, on to the retail. I'm going to take logistics in the same breath as that, um, because logistics has really become a dark retailer uh, in many ways. And I think we've seen retail sales actually recover quite significantly throughout the year. But as we all know, it's normally just a, a knock on the door and a package left at our front door these days. So the logistics market is, uh, and particularly last mile logistics, is bounding on a pace but really at the expense, uh, at least in part, uh, to the, the high street, which having has been decimated, I think it's fair to say. 
the government have tried to help and there have been rate, rate holidays and the, the planning policy has made it now much more um, uh, efficient to re repurpose uh, retail. However, there's a, when we come out of lockdown, I think we're going to see some big holes in the high street, rather like holes in one's front, front teeth after a, a bad teething. So sadly, some, some um, big names are going to be lost from the high street and it's going to be very hard to see how those are going to recover. Um, and then moving lastly to offices, now the, the news of earlier this week would seem that we are likely to be back in our offices at, um, towards the late spring, early summer, which I think will now be welcomed by most people on this call. I think uh, the mood has changed dramatically from the first uh, lockdown where everyone rather enjoyed uh, the novelty of working from home to a scenario in this third lockdown where everyone is absolutely ready to be back in the offices. Um, I think the Chief Executive Barclays uh, was quoted as saying in the first lockdown he didn't see a world where Barclays would ever go back into Canary Wharf and now he sees a world where Barclays absolutely needs to reoccupy. So um, I think for the for uh, the culture of a business people need to be back in an office and then for the spontaneous collaboration that a, an office environment provides people will need to be back. Uh, no doubt we'll be occupying space differently from the way we were before, but there's certainly a future there. Um, so in, in summary, uh, we see the future for property still being very strong. Uh, risk returns are, are good. You're getting probably a, a, a geared return of 5% on residential still um, with with commercial property ungeared showing you sort of 5, 6, 7%. So still attractive returns. Uh, in a in a reasonably buoyant market, and I'll end there and hand back to Philip. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed for that, Will. Um, I think it comes to something where we're all looking forward to Monday morning because we're going to the office. But I think that certainly is the case, as you say, particularly after this long lockdown. Thanks very much for that. Um, now it's the turn of Simon Bashoran to talks to talk about tax measures. Simon. Thank you, Phil, and uh, good morning, everyone, again. Uh, I think in the last six months, I've seen more comments and speculation in the press about what taxes might change in next week's budget than any I can remember for some time. Uh, and I think just about every tax, both personal and corporate, and ones yet to come into existence, uh, has been discussed. Given this and the fact that there tends to be at least one surprise in, in most budgets, I thought it'd be useful to look back at some of the suggestions that have been made, the impact that they might have, uh, the likelihood of them actually coming into play, and then some general thoughts on what individuals might want to think about in the regime that we're moving into, which uh, is one I think of tax rises rather than lower taxes in the future. I think that one thing that is clear is that the Chancellor has a difficult decision ahead of him, both in terms of the timing of any potential tax raises and what taxes he can actually raise. With the COVID support package running at 300 billion plus, speculation has naturally turned to how this is actually going to be repaid. It's hoped that we might grow our way out of it in some sort of recovery. Uh, inflation might be allowed to run a little ahead of itself to try and reduce that debt, but inevitably it seems as though we're going to be facing tax rises at some point in the future. I'm not sure the Chancellor wants to kill off a recovery with tax rises before that recovery is actually going. So that's the issue on the timing. And as Phil mentioned earlier, 
In terms of the taxes that he has available, three quarters of our tax revenue comes from the three taxes that they said in their manifesto they would not change, income tax, national insurance and VAT, and have reiterated that commitment recently. So what else is there really? There's been a lot of talk about capital gains tax. That's a lot of column inches on a tax that not many people pay or not many people pay with any sort of regularity. regularity. I think 276,000 people paid it in 2018-19, 10 billion pounds worth of revenue. So why is everyone talking about this? Uh, well, firstly, because it is an option that is on the table. Secondly, um, I think they signaled their intention to look at this regime with the changes that were made in the budget early last year. The removal of entrepreneurs relief and the replacement with business assets disposal relief was effectively a change to the CGT regime. So it's not too far away from that, that they might look at that again. And I think finally, uh, the Chancellor asking the Office of Tax Simplification to look in the summer at various aspects of the CJT regime and suggest some proposals, I think meant that it was a serious contender at that point in time. So what did the OTS actually suggest? Probably the most commented on uh, suggestion was aligning CGT rates, currently 10% at the basic rate, 20% at the high rate, an additional 8% for certain types of gains, most notably residential property, uh, aligning them with income tax rates. So the core rates, 20, 40 and 45. That is a significant uplift in terms of the, uh, the taxation of gains. If we think about raising a gain on the sale of investments, perhaps moving from 20% at the higher rate to 45, that's 125% increase in the tax. Residential property at the top rates, 28 to 45, that's a 60% increase in tax. If we think about selling a business and realizing a gain of 10 million pounds a year ago, your tax on that was £1 million. If these changes came into play, your tax would be over £4 million. So that is a substantial change uh, in the rates. So I'm not sure whether we'll see those. We'll come on to that in a second. But what were the other changes that the OTS suggested? Uh, there was a suggestion that the current annual allowance of 12300 that every individual has for capital gains is too generous. It's being used too effectively uh, for planning uh, on an annual basis, and the suggestion was to drop it, maybe to something akin to the dividend allowance, 2000 to 4000 pounds, maybe just stopping people accidentally tipping, to, tipping into capital gains, but removing that as an effective planning opportunity. Uh, other suggestions that were perhaps less well noted in the press uh, removal of the uplift to capital gains tax on death is pretty much a rule of thumb that you don't pay inheritance tax and capital gains tax at the same time. If you inherit some assets, there may have been a 40% deduction for IHT on the estate, but you will receive it at a higher base cost, the base cost at the date of, uh, uh, of death. A removal of that uplift creates that double whammy where you've potentially lost 40% of the value in IHT and then lose up to another 45% when you eventually sell the assets. So uh, that would be quite a significant change, uh, but it's thought that it would prevent people from hanging on to assets in later life. Uh, another OTS suggestion, again, looking back at entrepreneurs and selling business, uh, uh, what will further changes to business assets disposal relief, making it harder to get that 10% exemption, looking at your shareholdings uh, and how long you actually hold those uh, shares for before you get that relief. What are the chances of this happening? Well, not many people pay CGT, so you're not going to lose any votes or many votes on it. But 
I think it would be difficult for the chancellor, a conservative chancellor, to introduce such high CGT rates. Previously, whenever we've had rates of this sort of order, there's been an element of indexation, which has meant that you're not being taxed on the nominal gain. It's only the real aspect, the after inflation part of the gain that you're taxed on. Uh, similarly, CGT changes can drive behavior. And if you push them too far, you end up with the opposite of the desired effect and actually less revenue. It's largely a voluntary tax. People don't have to pay CGT. You just hold on to the asset. And I think for those reasons, we will not see a significant rise in capital gains tax rates next week. We may see a targeted rise. And again, second properties is, is an obvious target. Uh, I also think we might see an easy change, a change to the annual allowance that dropped from 12,300 down to a lower amount and a suggestion that it will be looked at in, in the future because that suggestion itself could trigger behaviours which generate more revenue, particularly the sale of second properties and that tax now having to be paid within 30 days, bringing that revenue forward rather than having to wait for it. So uh, I think that's something to uh, watch out for. If it's not going to be CGT, what other options does the Chancellor have? Now, I think Phil mentioned changes to pensions tax relief. Several areas here that I think uh, might be on the table. People have talked about almost every year in every budget changes to pensions tax-free cash. 25% of your lifetime allowance, just over a million pounds now. I think the Limp Dem manifesto talked about capping it at 125,000 pounds, which would effectively be 25% of, of, of half a million. Uh, I can't see that changing, one, because it's naturally being constricted by the restrictions on what you can put into pensions and the lifetime allowance, and two, because a lot of people are, are relying on this in some way in retirement, and to change the goalposts retrospectively doesn't usually happen without you being given an opportunity to protect what you have. What I do think will change in the future, but not necessarily next week, is pensions tax relief on contributions. That has been... I think on the list for change since 2016, when the uh, taper for higher earners was introduced, restricting the amount you can pay in each year. I just, there has been too much going on in terms of Brexit, general election, and now COVID for them to come out with uh, a suitable proposal. But it does seem like a flat rate of perhaps 25% uh, is what we will look at in the future, but it's complicated. The interaction with civil service schemes, defined benefit final salary schemes, you're risking people facing unexpected tax charges. And we saw that with the NHS doctors and the tinkering that has gone on around that taper recently. I think they need a proper proposal on this and it's not going to happen next week. We mentioned that income tax is triple locked, but there are ways in which they could adhere to the spirit, or sorry, the letter of the manifesto, but not necessarily the spirit of it. Uh, what am I thinking about? Well, income tax is payable at different rates uh, or, or on, on different forms of income. At the top rates is 20, 40, and 45. We know that dividend income is taxed at a lower amount. You could seemingly stick to that manifesto pledge and increase the tax rate on dividends. Not sure we'll see that, but another stealth income tax rise I think we will see next week is a freezing of the bands. So if you freeze the higher rate tax band at £50,000, those that have enjoyed higher income through perhaps pay rises will find themselves tipping into higher rate tax. Uh, uh, and, and I think we're definitely going to see that next, next week. On to inheritance tax. That's kind of been quiet for a while, but there have been several papers and consultations over the last few years uh, on, on this tax, notably an Office of Tax Simplification review in 2019. What came out of that? Well, I think the major one 
uh, and I think this has actually be viewed as a, a positive generally, so we may see this as a surprise, uh, is uh, a reduction in the number of years you need to survive after making a gift from seven to five before it falls out of your estate for IHT purposes. I think the, the hidden feature here was the seven-year clock, if you gift above a certain amount, has a taper that reduces the tax on it. That taper was going as well. So from a tax perspective, this is neutral, but it's quite a headline uh, uh, grab in terms of we've reduced the time you need to wait for that to fall out for five years. So that might be a surprise. Uh, again, there was talk of that removal of the CTT uplift on death. So that's just something to think about for the future. And there were changes to business property relief. But the more exciting paper for me on inheritance tax was something that was from the all-party parliamentary group for inheritance and intergenerational fairness. This was a little more radical. It was released about uh, Christmas time, and it effectively talked about scrapping all reliefs and exemptions on inherited tax, save a few. It was quite a dramatic uh, uh, paper, and it talked about a light, uh, an annual gift limit, 20 to 30,000 pounds, above which you pay tax at 10% or 20% on money you give away. Uh, that is quite a dramatic shift from the current situation we have of being able to give away effective limitless amounts and survive a period of time without having to pay tax on it. Uh, I think the key of these papers, these consultations, is that reform to the capital taxes, and I mean inheritance tax and capital gains tax, is going to happen. It's complicated. It's not going to happen next week, but I think we can see it uh, in the future. I think Phil touched on this in his introduction. Uh, we've had in the press over the last few weeks a shift away from personal tax uh, towards business tax. We've had levies on businesses that talk of levies on businesses that have done well over the COVID crisis, Amazon taxes, but more recently last weekend and this morning in the Times, uh, corporation tax going up. Currently 19%, the commitment to drop that to 17% over tax years was scrapped. Uh, and we're now looking at that Originally, it was 23 at the weekend. Now it's going to 25% over the rest of this parliament. Uh, why are they looking at this? Well, it's, it, it's, there's been a downward trend on corporation tax for the last half a century. So uh, I think on a relative international basis, we're still quite competitive. So that might be one reason why it could be perceived as acceptable to increase that now. Uh, and perhaps it is not perceived to drive behaviors in the same way that a, a big increase in CGT would. Uh, people go into business to make money. If you're increasing the corporation tax rate by 1%, is it going to stop the drive for, uh, for profits? You may look at how you organize your business. You may look at what you can expense against uh, uh, corporation tax, but it's not going to stop the drive for profits uh, in business. I think there are uh, there's a group in particular that are going to be, uh, this is going to be a bitter pill to swallow. It's those that were not available to access, not access, not, not able to access, sorry, uh, the support packages for limited companies because of perhaps the way they paid themselves from their companies over recent years who are now being asked to pay towards those support packages, the very ones that they can uh, access. I think that is not going to go down with that uh, group of individuals. Have I got any positive news? Uh, well, I, I think it's been touched on. Stamp duty extension is here to stay. Uh, I think the real positive news from this is I cannot see any significant changes to personal tax looking back at, at what I've discussed, and that gives us an opportunity. Uh, an opportunity to look at what we have at the moment, understand the assets, understand our tax exposure to those assets, and understand the role that those assets are going to play uh, in the future of our, our families. Once we have that understanding, we can look at what those objectives are, and it may be a case that we bring some of them forward because it might be more attractive to do those now. 
I'm thinking about things like if you were going to raise some gains to you know, fund the capital expenditure, buy a property in a couple of years' time, it might make sense to raise those funds now. Taxes, capital gains tax is at an historic low, and I can't see it staying that way uh, uh, a lot in the future. I think in three and a half, four years' time, if we have a new government, everything is back on the table and the regime could look quite different. So if not doing all of it now, maybe hedging your bets. Uh, similarly, when you look at investments, if you need to, you know, that, that holding that you inherited that you don't have an emotional attachment to, perhaps now it's time to look at uh, maybe reducing that and triggering some of those gains there. I think aside from that, looking at using every single allowance exemption, non-contentious tax planning wrapper that is available for you, spouses, family, uh, that is suitable for your objectives, especially uh, the use it or lose it ones, ISAs, pension contributions, cattle gains tax allowances, make sure they're all being used uh, because there's no guarantee they will be here in the future. Uh, I think I've probably run over slightly, so I'm going to hand back to Phil. Thank you. That was excellent. Thanks very much, Simon. And I think you've illustrated what, how constrained the Chancellor is and how creative he's going to be, if he, even if he wants to raise taxes this time around. Um, so now come to the point where we've got some questions and answers. Um, I think we've got Q&A for all the participants coming through so far. So I'll ask the first one to Will on the property market. And the question is, where do you see the opportunities in the UK property market over the next 12 months? Thanks, Will. Um, uh, interesting question. So I think possibly if I can take that in a few parts, it really rather depends who you are. So if you're a private investor, um, entrepreneur, you're probably going to be looking at the residential markets. And uh, I think it's very interesting to see that poll and where that might influence people. I think in reality, the stamp duty savings is around £15,000. So it's much more relevant to the smaller house uh, purchase than the larger one. So I think residential markets, and I do agree with Phil's sentiment that it, they're likely to flatten this year. However, the long-term prospect still remains very strong. So I think, I think um, particularly if you look at prime central London, values have gone off this year, actually would decline this year um, on the back of Brexit and um, uh, lockdown with overseas clients not coming into the UK. Um, so there, I think there's an, an amazing opportunity there to, uh, for that market to kick forward again. Um, I think even just for the individuals buying buying a, a flat to rent, um, that, that's continually been eroded um, by the government in terms of its tax benefits. However, you still get a good return. Um, you can still get sort of geared returns of five percent odd. Uh, so I think I think that's an interesting market still. You know, as a, as a hedge against other other investments. Um, on the more corporate side, uh, we're seeing the flight to professional landlords building blocks of uh, rental uh, accommodation and that has very much that came from America and we're now very much seeing that as a reality in the UK um, and we as an organization are, are backing that and I think um, that is here to stay so that's an interesting investment opportunity and I think as is logistics and I think most people understand the the, uh, the attraction of logistics or the relative cost of sale from one However, just a word of caution there, you are tending to invest in single units which have a least expiry achieved or will do. They tend to be fairly short dated these days, so maybe industrial estates are a, a slightly better, wider hedge on that. Um, 
I think then just lastly, and I just touched on it in my earlier conversation, uh, uh, comments, uh, repurposing. Um, we're going to see a high street that's not going to look the way it looks like over the next five years. Um, the planning legislation has been adapted to allow for repurposing of retail into other uses without planning consent, and we've indeed seen interesting ideas this year from our clients, um, retail warehousing to uh, laboratory uses, such at which you actually don't need planning consent for. So really interesting ideas that are coming from clients, always where there's an entrepreneur, there's normally a way. Um, and I think the planning environment has going, is going to be um, widened to allow for those entrepreneurial plays. Uh, back to you, Philip. Thanks, Will. And I'm afraid you're not going to get a rest quite yet. There's another <laughs> question that's come through on the property market. and. Um, this is that if we do get the three months extension on stamp duty land tax, is that simply not extending the cliff edge just as we're ending lockdown? Um, I think it's going to be, uh, as I said earlier, I think it's, it's, uh, it's going to, it will have an impact on the, the values of 250 to 500,000 pound flats. Absolutely. It's probably more emotive than anything else. Um, when there's a, we've seen a sort of a rush towards it um, when people think think that, but actually in the whole scheme of an investment, it's not the most significant cost. So um, I, I, I don't think it's going to be the single biggest influencer on how the house market uh, performs this year. Thanks very much, Will. Uh, we've got a couple of questions, I think, coming in for Simon. Um, so I'll, I'll ask them both at once. It allows us to get more questions asked. Um, do you see a reduction to the annual ISA contribution allowance being on the cards? And the second part of the double header is how likely do you think a wealth tax is in the future? Uh, looking at those in order, I think it's fair to say that the ISA allowance is quite generous uh, at its full rate, 20,000 pounds a year, when you think about that 40,000 pounds between uh, a husband and wife and what that adds up to uh, every year and how many people can afford to set that aside out of net income or, or capital, uh, it, it is generous, but we are trying to encourage individuals to save uh, and it has been uplifted to that point from much lower levels. Uh, I, I can't see that changing in the short term. Uh, what we may see is an overall cap on uh, ISAs, but I think, again, the one nice thing about a lot of similar changes to, to that is you have been allowed to protect what you have got. Uh, so it's not retrospective. It's not going to take you from a 200,000 ISA pot to saying we're removing the tax treatment on, on 100,000 that and now capping it at 100,000. You should be allowed to keep what you've got. So it is generous. Uh, and that's why we always suggest that people use it. Uh, but I can't see that uh, uh, changing uh, uh, anytime soon. In terms of the wealth tax, that's an interesting one. Uh, there was a report by the Wealth Tax Commission uh, last, last spring, I think, uh, were put together. It was largely an academic group, and they were looking at the desirability and deliverability of a wealth tax uh, in the UK as a one-off uh, to repay uh, COVID. Somewhat unsurprisingly, the Wealth Tax Commission found that a wealth tax was a good idea. Uh, another shocker, perhaps, from their report is they found that the majority were in favour of a wealth tax. Well, the majority do tend to be in favour of taxes that the majority are not going to pay. 
what were they looking at? Uh, I think it was the figure that was in the press was half a million pounds above that 5%, but you get five years to pay it. So it was a million pounds for a couple. Having read the report, uh, the 500,000 wasn't a definite figure. It was just an example that they gave, but that was the one that we latched onto. But I think the issue for this is it is such a departure from the way that we have worked on a tax basis previously. The logistics of implementation, this included main residence, it included chattels above a certain value, it included your pension funds, it included private company shares. How are these going to be valued? Who is going to pay for the value of these? The implementation costs and the anti-avoidance, anti-forestalling measures that would be needed are quite staggering. So on that note, I cannot see a wealth tax, especially because I don't think our Chancellor would want to uh, go down that route. And I think Boris as well has said no to that. So I, I don't think we'll be seeing a wealth tax anytime soon. Fantastic. And whilst I've, I've got you on the line, Simon, um, if there is a change to capital gains tax, um, would it have immediate effect or would it apply from the 6th of April? I think this comes back to uh, a point I made in, in my little uh, discussion on the behaviours that CGT can drive. If you tell people that capital gains tax is going to rise in 12 months' time, it triggers action. People do take a closer look at what they've got and will probably be triggering gains, selling investments, selling properties that they might have intended to sell in the future to lock it in at lower rates. What does that do? That brings forward revenue, which is what every government wants. If you do it overnight, it can have that opposite effect. So people, instead of taking action, they delay. So I'd like to think that a small change like that, the annual allowance could be quick, but if you're going to change rates, uh, you give people a bit of notice because that might bring forward some revenue. That said, the change to entrepreneurs' relief, uh, the tax that uh, perhaps entrepreneurs pay on the sale of the business, was overnight uh, last year. So it does signal that when they do want to change things quickly, they can do it from the night of the budget. But I'd like to hope that you got some notice, partly because it would drive behaviours that are actually, I think, in their interest. Seems to make a lot of sense. Thank you very much. We've got some questions on the economy now, so I'll, I'll try and take two or three of those now. And we always get some questions on inflation during these webcasts, and this is no exception. So the first one that's come through is what inflationary risks do you see in the UK economy? And a related question is um, what's the panel's view on inflation expectations and their impact on investment decisions? In terms of the outlook for inflation in the UK, Look, um, we're going to see quite a lot of volatility and inflation rising over the next 12 months. And a lot of the volatility reflects the ending of um, measures and the 12th month anniversary of uh, measures such as temporary cut in VAT. And of course, I think it's almost a year ago um, in March that we actually saw oil prices go negative. And so you know, what you see is um, a comparison against a very low level, for example, of energy prices, and mechanically that drives the inflation rate up. But what we're looking at is um, the inflation rate moving um, up from under 1% at the moment to around 2% by uh, the end of the year. And although it's an upward direction and, and volatile, we actually don't see a threat to the Bank of England's 2% inflation target over the medium term. And that's critical in terms of interest rate prospects. We don't see the central bank being under pressure to raise interest rates anytime soon. In terms of inflation expectations, most of the surveys, um, they, they do vary, but not wildly. 
And if you're beginning to fear that you'll see double-digit inflation, that, that will certainly have an impact on whether you think that it's worth investing in new plants and machinery, for example, because you fear a big um, reaction from higher interest rates. And that, that's not the case. So I think that people will understand the reasons why inflation is rising, albeit from a very low level and why it's volatile. I don't see that as, as being particularly negative. A separate question is, does it make a difference that our debt is longer dated? Um, is that another reason um, behind sterling? It does make a difference that um, it's, it's longer dated debt. Now, I remember back in the, the bad old days of the European debt crisis that you know, Italian duration of government debt was relatively low, which means that you have to roll over your debt um, more frequently. Um, I know that the debt management office in the UK is very scientific in the way that it tries to structure the duration of the portfolio of UK government liabilities. Um, they're very professional. They really know what they're doing. Um, and you, you do have a fair even spacing of, of the maturities. And of course, if you had to roll over debt quickly at the moment, because rates are so low, um, it's a relatively favorable time to um, issue gross debt anyway. So that, that isn't too much of a problem at the moment. Um, I'm not convinced that it's having an impact on sterling, but obviously if the UK's fiscal credibility were to be blown, then sterling is only going to go in, in one direction. Okay, um, question on the property market here coming for Will. Um, with the recent fall in PCL property prices, it seems to be a good time to buy for a long-term view. Uh, would you say that that remained the case given um, what might be planned CGT rises? And um, if I can ask a second question on the back of that, would non-PCL property investments be a better choice, uh, for example, in the suburbs? Will. Uh, thanks, Philip. I think... Um... I think it's down to the individual largely. Uh, the the, the ta tax is based on the individual, or um, the additional tax is based on the individual and their circumstances. So I think I think um, the difference in uh, attitude to where you want to invest is ra rather uh, driven by your circumstance um, and the yield. Obviously, if you uh, you invest out of prime central London, the yield you would enjoy on a on a on a property would be better. Will be higher than it would be on a prime central London property. Um, that said, that said, I think it's important and it's, it's worth people looking at the um, the the, the, um, the research and both very well respected agents such as Knight Frank and Sales do see a, a very marked bounce back in that prime central London market um, up to 25% increase over the next five years, which is, you know, really quite something. So I think um, tax is one thing, but actually, you know, it's, it's, it's the value increase that is the, uh, the important piece. That said, London as a whole is going to increase. So I think it's, it's down to personal um, circumstance. Great. Thanks very much, Will. Okay. Um, I think we've got about just over five minutes for questions, so I'll, I'll try and get as many of, of, of your questions in. So, Simon, um, a double question for you. Is the possibility of inheritance tax being levied on recipients over their lifetimes a realistic one? 
Second question, do you see a realignment of national insurance rates to the self-employed towards the rates play, paid by employers um, or employees? And I seem to remember that that was a bit of a live issue. I think it was four years ago. Thank you. It, it, it was, I suppose, dealing with the inheritance tax question uh, first. I'm not sure I, I entirely understand it, but uh, it, it does actually work that way slightly at the moment in terms of if you are the recipient, the donee uh, of, of a gift, a large gift, and inheritance tax is due on that because the person that gave it to you uh, ha has passed away, the first port of call is you. Uh, for that inheritance tax uh, and not the estate. So it does actually work that way now. But I know that uh, they're looking at simplifying things for, for executors. The problem with gifts is it tends to be the person giving it that has most of the money uh, that has probably the ability to uh, keep some aside for any tax that might be due on it. So that's why I think it's more likely to be the donor in the future if we do have this lifetime giving deduction of tax at that point, uh, uh, who, who pays for it. Also, when we think about you don't have to give cash, you can give assets. So again, who is more likely to have the money to set aside uh, for that or to pay that and how easy is it to collect? So uh, I think it's more likely to fall on the donor, but uh, uh, who knows uh, on, on that. Uh, on the national insurance bill, you're absolutely right. That was discussed uh, a long time ago, and a lot has been talked about uh, about the the fairness or otherwise of uh, I, I suppose the different ways people can be taxed on income from self-employed to those that operate through limited companies, uh, and. Uh, I think we will eventually see an aligning of that. I think the system is, is ripe for full reform as well. National insurance is effectively income tax, and it would simplify things a lot if they were combined as income tax uh, and make the same for everyone. I think it's going to take a while, and I think there has just been so much going on over the last three or so years. It comes back to that Brexit, general election, COVID, that proper reform of the likes of income tax, national insurance, and the capital taxes, and pensions actually, they just have not had the resource uh, at HMRC to do that. Uh, but I think it is coming. Brilliant, thanks very much. Um, I think I've got time for a couple more questions and there seems to be a few economics type um, queries coming through. Um, two on the currency, is the current strength of the pound likely to continue in the long term? Um, are the fundamentals the same? And what is fair value sterling against the US dollar? Okay. Um, well, we try and measure fair value in a number of ways, um, one of which is to say what sort of level of the currency pair would roughly equalize prices in both economies, and that's something called purchasing power parity, or PPP. Um, our PPP models are essentially saying that fair value is sterling against the dollar is somewhere between 160 and 165. Yes, I did say 160 to 165. Um, our currency forecasts have been for, for a while now, um, 140 by the end of this year on cable and 153 by the end of next year. And what's been surprising hasn't been so much the direction of travel of sterling, but its speed. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of that is due to what is effectively the UK's very impressive vaccination rate. We are a bit skeptical that we'll continue to see sterling rise um, in a straight line um, at some stage. Um, we'll probably see a bit of profit taking and other things will appear on the horizon to, uh, to slow it down. We've maintained our target of 140 at the end of the year, but clearly there's a risk that you know, we get to 153, our N22 target, um, a lot quicker than we're saying.
Are there likely to be issues within the Eurozone on the ability of different members to finance their deficits they've built up due to COVID? Um, at the moment, no, because the European Central Bank is buying so much debt and that's keeping bond prices up, borrowing rates subdued. Um, over the longer term, some of those um, debt to GDP ratios will look worrying. Of course, you've got something like a three quarters of a trillion fiscal expansion um, over the EU as a whole. Um, and that's not going to be left to individual countries to um, pay back or, or to finance. Um, that's a European Union wide borrowing, um, which removes or at least reduces the risk of uh, countries, individual countries finding um, difficulties in um, servicing and indeed paying back their debt. Um, question, where do you see the soft spots in the UK stock market? Um, I think I am going to uh, pass on that one. And I think what I'll say is that we'll get our UK equity strategist in at some stage and he'll be able to take questions on that. But my gut feel is that you are look, beginning to look at stretched valuations, particularly in the US and you know perhaps tech stocks. And a lot of that valuation will depend on the extent to which bond yields, i.e. borrowing costs, carry on rising. I think if they fall back a little bit, as we're suggesting, then you've got less of a valuation issue there. And also, if you were the chancellor, what taxes would you put in place to reduce the amount of government debt? Um, I am going to be very politically neutral here and not talk about specific taxes. But in terms of a general strategy, I would be very hesitant to um, look at a fiscal tightening now or a big one. Um, I think you have to get rid of COVID and the pandemic before you can actually start uh, raising revenues and, and let the economy get some momentum. You could argue that corporations have done pretty well from the various borrowing schemes and indeed the furlough schemes for the labour market. Um, and it sort of seems appropriate that corporation tax rises over the medium term. But in terms of a general strategy, I think what I would probably be looking to do is to take a, a gradual route out of um, deficits and deficit to GDP ratios and to aim to get the debt to GDP ratio to begin to fall over the medium term. I think trying to reduce absolute debt is impossible. What you effectively need there is to start running a surplus. And you know, given that we're at you know, perhaps 325 billion in terms of the deficit this year, um, that is a little bit too ambitious uh, and certainly counterproductive in terms of looking at the economy. Okay, um, I think that's all that we have time for uh, in this session. Thanks very much to all of you in the audience for attending. Uh, of course, a special word of thanks to Will Schooler and Simon Bashoran, and of course, our colleagues um, whose hard work behind the scenes makes these webinars possible. Thank you very much again. Goodbye, keep safe, and see you next time.